4: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
2: From the small towns.
4: To the big cities.
3: We bring you
0: the stories that matter.
4: This is. This is.
3: This is the Our American Stories podcast.
1: This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We're so thankful for all of you that have been listening to our podcast over the last few years. Even in the last few months, we've seen more and more of you tuning in. We know that's all thanks to you spreading the word about this show. We have some exciting news for you because of the show's growth. Our American Stories is partnering with Premier Networks, the largest broadcasting syndicator in the country, to reach more and more people. Because of this, our podcast is going to sound a little different in a few weeks. We'll be bringing you our full radio show, brought to you straight from Premiere. While the format will be different, it will still be the same old stories you've come to expect from us. We hope you'll stay with us through this change as it's been your downloads, your shares, and your donations which let us know how much you love this show. And now for today's stories, we'll bring you the story of one of the most controversial laws ever passed, the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. We'll also bring you the story of Joe Klimchak, who knew at the age of seven he would work for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But first, we bring you a story from Randall Haley, entitled Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, where she reminisces about the times when her and her dad would go to the yearly Juke Joint Blues Festival in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Here's Randall.
4: Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only cough it's urgent, otherwise, when you can suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, It was but he asked me something this time that left me reminiscent. Born and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksdale had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember juke joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees like Mr. Pettit, who he probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got the sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if he had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great, like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, there were many, Every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again, If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, how old are you? Followed by, okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town, listening to blues that rings out from every corner. Stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy. Or, did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table two with your mouth closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksville Hospital and I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on Earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around the table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there, whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues, or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man.
1: I heard the news, rockin tonight. And what a beautiful story. What a voice. Randall Haley's, let's just face it, it was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening, you can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. If you love what you're listening to, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating. And while you're at it, review us. Let us know what you like about the show. It helps others find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. Up next, the Alien and Sedition Acts is one of America's most controversial laws ever passed. Dr. Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College tells the story. Here's Monty.
3: It's the summer of 1798. Our nation is brand new. And our second president, John Adams, has just signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Here's Dr. Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College with more on what that meant.
0: It's plural because there were four of them. There were two alien acts. One of them was called the Alien Enemies Acts, which gave the president basically unilateral power to remove adult males that were nationals of countries that we were currently at war with. The other was known as just the Alien Act or sometimes the Alien Friends Act. It said that even without war, a president could deport immigrants from another country if he thought that they posed some sort of threat or danger. The third was the Naturalization Act, which just extended how long someone that immigrated to the United States had to wait before applying for citizenship. It had been five years. This made it 14 and then finally, the uh, Sedition Act, which is actually the most famous of the group of acts, said that you could be prosecuted for saying a malicious or slanderous things about the Congress or the President of the United States, or also if you were trying to go against the policy and positions of the United States broadly understood.
3: But why were these acts passed? It turns out it had a little bit to do with Adams himself and how our nation felt about two countries across the Atlantic Ocean to really understand where he was coming
0: from in doing so. Some people will attribute it to his personality. He tended to be a fairly prideful man, uh, uh, struggled with vanity, so maybe he didn't want to be criticized, but it, it was actually a lot more than that, even though you can't deny that that couldn't have played a part. You have to understand the broader context in America, and you have to understand the broader context in the world. Internationally, America was caught in a kind of geopolitical conflict between the two major powers of the time. And the two major powers, uh, if you remember the Cold War, sort of everyone gravitated, it seemed, toward either the United States or Russia. The equivalent, or, or somewhat equivalent at that time, was France and England. They were the two big geopolitical powers that faced off. And American politics itself, domestically, in many ways its first divide, the first formation of political parties was based off of should our international policy be more friendly to France or should it be a little more friendly to Great Britain? And much of the policy that France and Great Britain had toward us was depending upon whether we were being friendly to them. And so what starts to happen is the Federalist Party, that John Adams was a part of, Thought that England was a better idea the other party that was founded by Thomas Jefferson who had lost to Adams in 1796 said that we need to be more friendly to France because the federalists are in charge when the French Revolution happens they go and start to make treaties with Great Britain they stop paying debts to the new French government saying they owed it to the old king of France not this new revolutionary government And what they end up doing is siding with England over France. This not only enrages the Jeffersonians, it enrages France. When Adams takes over, something that starts up is what's called the Quasi-War, where we got into a conflict with France that was never declared, but involved a lot of French privateers taking out our shipping, all in reaction to the fact that France thought we were not keeping up our obligations to them and we're going too much for Great Britain as tensions heat up with France the Federalists get more and more worried not only about immigrants that might be from France or like minded countries but they get really nervous about how loyal and how on America's side are the Jeffersonians are they going to be too pro-French, are they going to subvert the American Republic and so what they end up doing is implementing first the immigration restrictions and then the sedition acts themselves, I think partly out of fear for the stability of government, fear of foreign influence, and worry that the the international scene and the power of France in particular was going to undermine our own system and our own politics.
3: The reaction to these laws was fast and negative, at least on the opposite side of the political debate and two founding fathers, one the sitting vice president at the time, penned two political statements in response to it that were so controversial George Washington said, if systematically pursued, they would dissolve the union or produce coercion. The two most famous documents that come
0: out of this are the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. They were passed by the state legislatures of those two commonwealths. Partly they're famous because Jefferson ghost-wrote the Kentucky Re- Resolution, James Madison co-wrote the Virginia Resolution, and that's one of the arguments among several others that they make, that this violates the right to free speech that basically it would be used and was used to punish dissenting
3: opinion and freedom of the press. The reason Washington said these statements could potentially dissolve the Union? Well, that was because they also called for states to nullify or not follow federal law that they saw as contrary to the Constitution. But if you're wondering who some of these people who were prosecuted under the Sedition Act were, here's some examples of rather colorful commentary that got politicians and journalists alike arrested in the late 1700s. Matthew Lyon, a sitting congressman from Vermont who would later become famous for attacking another congressman with a fire poker on the floor of the house, wrote that the Adams administration was marred by ridiculous pomp and selfish avarice. And Luther Baldwin was indicted, convicted, and fined $100 for a drunken incident that occurred during a visit by President Adams to Newark, New Jersey. Upon hearing a gun report during a parade for Adams, He yelled, I hope it hits Adams in the butt.
0: You know, you you look at what was said and it really wouldn't strike us as anything that we wouldn't see on Twitter or on a blog today and really wouldn't come to the level that even outrages us now as far as as discourse. It really was fairly standard, even if the at times critiques of the president and Congress. And they didn't make it very far in the courts.
3: The Jeffersonians, that is, because they didn't try to take these laws down in them. Instead, they simply waited until 1800, in election
0: year. The main opponents to these laws really fought the battle out in the uh, court of public opinion, in elections. In state legislatures it ended up being pretty disastrous for the federalist party as the reality of these acts settled in especially the sedition act i think it really undermined them it helped jefferson to eke out a fairly narrow victory in 1800 but to gain a huge win in Congress. Congress, the Federalist Party, really got decimated in 1800, and I think it's partly as a reaction to this. And what then ended up happening was, not only did the Federalists lose the 1800 election, they really ceased after that election to be a viable national party. They limped along for another 12 years or so, but they never came close to winning the White House again. They never really came close to winning the House or Senate they really became a regional party without much power.
3: And as expected, the Sedition Act was allowed to expire when Jefferson took office, followed by the Alien Friends Act. But that doesn't mean all of the acts were destroyed by the Jeffersonians. The one that is still around
0: that's interesting is a version of the Alien Enemies Act remains, which again is the law that says that if we are at war with a country... Nationals from that country can be deported basically unilaterally. And this was even used by the FDR administration during World War II. And this is distinct from the internment camps that are infamous now in American history. This was actually used on a variety of nationals. Um, to uh, deport them during World War II. So not only did it re- that one remain on the book slightly modified, uh, it was actually used as late as the 20th
3: century. But if there's one thing that the Alien and Sedition Acts and their failure made clear, it's that our own rights are important. The right to f-
0: speak and write freely is central to a popular government's ability to peacefully adjudicate disputes between each other rather than either having a tyranny or having uh, a bloodshed that 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 you protect speech to protect peace and to protect the free flow of ideas
1: and great job as always to monty and thanks as always to hillsdale college for all they do again go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses And by the way, it just shows this nation's been at battle with each other always since the beginning. There have been fights, but always, always we grow stronger because of them. And always, well, we have elections, these things called elections, and there is always the peaceful transfer of power each and every time, a unique attribute that this country enjoys, and there's not enough gratitude in and around a fact like that. And we want to thank the great folks at Hillsdale College for supporting us in all the storytelling we do about this great country's history and stories from you. We want to hear your stories, and you can send them to us at ouramericanstories.com. Click on the Your Stories tab and share your story with us and with our listeners. We can't wait to hear them. Finally, as a boy, Joe Klimchak dreamed of being in Major League Baseball, but not on the field playing. Here's Joe.
2: The love for baseball came from attending my first Pirates game when I was seven. My dad took me to my first game at Three Rivers Stadium. It was love at first sight. It really was. I walked in, and and it was everything about the ballpark. It It was the bright green turf. It was the lights. It was the sound of the organ. It was the smells of you know, nachos and, and, and popcorn and, and, and cotton candy and peanuts and and you were allowed to smoke then, so it was actually the smell of cigars I liked. And then beer all mixed up into one. So that was great. It was the big jumbotron in center field. It was sensory overload. It was just amazing. Sometimes it just clicks. Sometimes you're just like this this space makes me really happy. And I thought this is this atmosphere is just amazing. Everybody's happy here. You know, even when the pirates are, are losing, you know, and, and, and there were years that we lost more than we won, but there were obviously championship years too. But in the mid-70s, we were good. We were called the Lumber Company. I have my program from my first game. And then, of course, and then the big thing for me was this voice then that came over the PA system that was rich and deep and beautiful. And I thought, wow, I heard that voice and I said, I said, that's it. Somehow, someway, that's the job I want. I somehow have to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. At the age of seven I knew exactly what I wanted to do because I thought this is definitely the place and that's definitely the job I want to do. His name was Art McKinnon, the public address announcer. He was a PA announcer for um, almost 50 years. It was like the tones of a Stradivarius is the way his voice has been uh, described. It was just so beautiful and, and I made that connection. And My dad would say that when we went to games after that I would spend as much time in my seat twisted around watching Art on the fourth level make the announcements, or watching the radio and TV guys on the third level. And I was just, I was locked into the announcers. First steps, it was researching these guys and reading about them. My first book was Voices of the Game, and I read about all the, that was more about, not public address, but the radio announcers, the Harry Carey's, the Harry Calluses, the Vin Scully's. And then it was really just watching these announcers on TV, doing games, sportscasters, game show hosts. I was a big Richard Dawson fan, Bob Barker fan, Alex Trebek fan. It was more about... Uh, the show and less about the game, it was like it was like what they did. It was their nods, it was their winks, it was their gestures. I was just absorbing all of that. The evening news, the network news, it would be Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, watching them, the little their voice inflection. I just would study that constantly and it would memorize their scripts, I would rehash them. I remember being in our house and actually my two younger sisters. What a blessing it was that they would actually play along with me for at least five minutes, I believe. I was in my bedroom, they were in theirs, and I would actually do a little radio show through the heating vent of my bedroom, just kind of say, okay, you guys, you guys sit here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple announcements, read a couple of news stories, give you the scores from last night. And I had to work extra hard because I attended Center School District in, in Beaver County in Aliquippa. And in my class of 186 students, there was only one That needed remedial speech training and that one was me and my mom actually saved that intermediate unit form and i have it Um, from 1979 i was 10 years old and i had uh, i had a bad lisp couldn't say my s's clearly and it actually says reason for assignment on the sheet poor articulation i i just generally garbled my words so um, not a good start for a guy who wants to be a major league baseball announcer so i had to work extra hard the lisp thing just was terrible for me. It, it took me so many so many uh, practice sessions, and I still didn't get it. I, was, I, was, uh, I remember I was in this uh, session with another girl who was in another grade. She wasn't in my grade. She was actually a little younger than me, but she got it right away, and I was like, I just couldn't do it. For me to make an S sound, I actually had to bite down, and my S's were, which is still kind of sloppy, but that was the best I could do until it finally clicked like a year later. Constant repetition, constant studying announcers, memorizing scripts, rehashing scripts. Art McKinnon had a drill that he would actually, he's a longtime PA announcer, he had a drill where he would read through magazine articles and if he skipped a line or had a hiccup or or messed up he would have to go back to the beginning and start again. I would read every article in my Sports Illustrated magazines and when I read through all those I grabbed my mom's Woman's Days and Family Circles and I read all those out loud. So again I just wanted to get as much repetition as I could because somehow, some way, you know, I wanted to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. So I, I, I'm at Grove City College and majoring in communications. I'm on the radio station staff and I, I kind of carried that passion for announcing to college because I wanted to get as much experience now that I could there. And with the radio station, I became the sports director, the news director. I hosted a morning show. Um, they had a production studio there. I was always doing announcing in that station. Spent most of my time there. Most of my time was spent there. Um, I was also the public address announcer for all the sports, not just football and basketball, but the Olympic sports too. I did PA for soccer, for volleyball, for swimming, for baseball. Um, Again, gathering all the communications, announcing experience I could. That's why for me, Grove City College was a perfect fit because I was hands-on. I was able to do that from from my freshman year for four years to do all that announcing. I collected all this great, great experience. And and it was because of that that I was actually, when I was a sophomore, I said, okay, now with some real experience, now now I think it's time to let the Pirates know that I'm interested in in, in working for them because I know in a couple years it'll be time to graduate and and I would love to roll right into a big league announcing job but those jobs don't come open very often. So I remember writing them a letter and at this time now uh, Art mckinnon the longtime PA announcer who I heard at the age of seven, he was the backup public address announcer. Now he was the backup because he was too old; he was in his 80s. Tim Tobacco was the regular announcer. Art was doing the game games on Sundays. Tim was doing uh, every other game. But I decided to write a letter to the Pirates and say, Pirates, dear Pirates, my name's Joe. I've collected all this announcing experience. I know you have a regular public address announcer and a backup public address announcer. But I really think, I really, really think you need a backup to the backup public address announcer. That's what you need. Because just in in the event that Tim and Art can't work a game, you need somebody reliable to fall back on. And I'm your man because I've been listening to these guys for years, memorizing their scripts inside and out. Would you please hire me? or at least give me a listen, or keep me on the list. So a couple weeks later, they wrote me back. It was like, no, we thank you for your interest, but we uh, have two announcers already. We don't need a backup to the backup announcer. And I remember the last line actually saved the rejection letter. It said, best of luck in your efforts to work in baseball. And I was like, ah. For me, that sounded like a crushing line, because all all my life, all I wanted to do was work for the Pirates. It almost sounded like, uh, no thanks, and, and, and good luck. Try somewhere else. We don't have any interest in, in you. But of course, I was uh, obsessed with getting this job, so I wrote them another letter. I said, no, you really need to hire me. You really, really... I, I detailed all my experience. I went into more detail, and they sent me another rejection letter saying, no, really, we really thank you. Best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. So I was crushed. Two rejection letters now. But I was going to be persistent. I was going to keep trying. I was going to keep going after this. So what I decided to do is actually write a letter to Art McKinnon himself. I wrote to the 85-year-old backup public address announcer, longtime PA legend announcer, Art McKinnon. And I said, Art, I really appreciate what you do. You're, you're, you're amazing. You inspired me to do this. I heard your voice at the age of seven, and I said, that's the job I want. Um, is there any chance that you can work me somehow into the organization. I've tried through the Pirates. They sent me some rejection letters. I would love to get on a list of announcers or if you can give me any guidance, any, any help whatsoever, I'd appreciate it. I'm now working at Grove City College. I've graduated uh, and, and the, the college, uh, it was a real blessing, they hired me to work as their sports information director. met my wife of now 27 years, Jennifer, at the college and uh, we were going back to my apartment. Uh, one night, and uh, this is back in the days of answering machines that flashed when there was a message, so there was a big red one, hit play, and I can remember like it was yesterday. Joe, this is Art McKinnon. I have your letter here, your very nice letter. I'm under the weather, but I promise to write you back. Goodbye, Joe. And I remember I cried when I heard that. I was like, oh my goodness, that, Art McKinnon has called me, Joey Klimchak, up here in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Uh, and he's going to write me back. And I, I, from returning to Jen, I said, that's the crack in the door I needed. Somehow, someway, one day I'm going to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. It's going to happen. Art did write me back. He was true to his word. He wrote me back. Actually, he didn't write me back. He typed me back. It was this typewritten letter that I actually have hanging on my wall right now. And he essentially the letter said, appreciate your kind comments and uh, you, feel, you you appear very qualified to do public address but uh, my connections aren't what they once used to be and I really can't help you. Um, but don't pass up on any bets, work hard and, and, and essentially saying, not in so many words, best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. That's kind of, like, I felt like it was, it was the same thing from Art. who would say, I can't help you, but, but thanks for writing and, and good luck. And I was like, ah. Oh. Again, I, I felt a little crushed again, but uh, was not gonna be deterred, kept pushing. I wrote Art back again. And I said, Art, thank you so much for the letter. And I'm not a pushy guy, but I got a little pushy with Art in a way. I said, Art, is there any way that I can actually watch you do public address for an inning during a Sunday game? I actually picked out the game. September 20th, Pirates against the Phillies, 1992. Can I show up at the ballpark and watch you do public address? Didn't know what he would say. He wrote me back. Received your letter. Don't buy tickets. Report to Pressgate A. And I'll see you on September 20th. I was like, wow, this is great. So Jennifer and I show up that day. It was a beautiful day. I remember Mickey Morandini, the Phillies turned a triple play that day. I remember everything about that day. And it was only for 6 outs, but it was amazing. I felt like it was, you know, just it was out of body. I was on cloud nine. But those 6 outs came and went. He turned around, he shook my hand. He said, "Thank you." Walked me out the door. And and then Tim Debacco, who's the regular announcer, he was there. Shook his hand. He said, "Nice to meet you." And he said, "Good luck." And next thing you know, I'm out in section 600 whatever. Sitting there with Jennifer saying well, okay, that was great and all but I made some good contacts I suppose But I'm really not there. I haven't got my big break yet yet. I I, I was still waiting. I have not gotten my big break yet So I was still a little frustrated But my big break did finally come months later I'm working at Grove City College sports information director. It's lunch break and I was gonna head down to get a sandwich on Main Street And I turn on an AM radio station, a small Mercer County radio station, WPIC. And the announcer is Dave Hanahan. And he comes on the air. And why he read this announcement, I have no idea. This is Mercer County. This is like 60, 70 miles north of Pittsburgh. But he read this. He said that the Pirates have decided to, this upcoming season, have high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. And the first one was going to be I believe it was like May 16th, I remember the two teams, it was going to be Greater Latrobe against Derry. And I heard that and instantly I was like, oh my goodness, light bulb went off. I'm not going to get a sandwich today, I'm going to double back to my office. This was before cell phones, I got to my office phone, called the Pirates, obviously thinking like they needed an announcer for these games. So it took a long time to find the person in charge, finally they got on the line. They said we actually hadn't even considered having an announcer for those games, since you're interested, sure, we'll, we'll listen to a tape. Got to the production studio. Of course, I, I'd memorized the scripts inside and out. Knew all the formatics and everything, the pauses, the inflections. The lady's name was Jackie. She called me back the next day. She said, Joe, we heard your tape. And if you're willing to work for free, congratulations. You are the announcer of our high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. I was like, wow, that's great. I'll see you there on May 16th. I'll show up. I can't wait to do this. Uh, so that was a big break for me. That, that was huge. I mean, uh, you know, I would have done anything for free. I would have swept the floors for free. But the chance to announce in the big league ballpark, that was, that was amazing. I'm in the same booth, not just in the booth now, but I'm at Art McKinnon's microphone. That was crazy. Announcing in this stadium with 60,000 seats, never mind that only 60 of them were full for my games. But it was still a great experience. I did that for, uh, for a year. Months later the Pirates gave me a call and they let me know that the Pirates are going to be soon having an audition for the backup public address announcer position. Art McKinnon is now too old to be the backup PA announcer. So they asked me if I'd be interested in showing up. They knew that I'd written those letters years ago. They knew that I was a high school announcer. They expected that I would be interested in it, and obviously I was. They said, sure, I'd love love that. So I showed up uh, for this audition, hoping it would just be me and a couple other people, but it was me and eight other people. And they were all people from the Pittsburgh media. And I was like, oh, no. So on paper, I really had no chance at winning this audition. I was a kid just a couple years out of college. These were all seasoned professionals. They probably actually handpicked these people to come in. These are guys I've been—and actually, there was one lady, too, that I've been listening to and watching for years. So we're all assembled, nine people, auditioning to become the backup public address announcer for the Pirates. They take us up to the booth one by one. Got to be my turn. And uh, they said, "Okay, Joe, here's your first announcement. It's, It's the crowd control announcement. And I actually said, I, I don't need the script. I, thought, I actually I know that one by heart. So I opened up the microphone, ladies and gentlemen. We remind you, please do not go onto the field or in any way interfere with baseball still in play or throw objects of any kind. So I knew that one by heart. Did it? It went well. I actually knew that one backward. I knew that one backward. Play and still baseballs with interfere way any in or field the two on go not do please you remind we gentlemen and ladies. It was crazy. Like when you when you want something that bad, you get a little freakish about it. And I was freakish about getting this job. This is a week after the audition, and my director. came over and said, Joe, congratulations, you won the audition, you're now the backup public address announcer of the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was huge. I I was excited. I was like, wow, okay, I I finally did it. Um, But I'm just the backup. And when you're the backup, you don't get many games. I got my first game. They actually gave me my first game. Usually, I would would only get a game when Tim can't make the game. He'd have to be sick or have some kind of family emergency. But they gave me my first game, May 26, 1994. Again remember, like it was yesterday, it was a 13-inning game. Pirates won 11-10 over the Mets. And it was, it, was just, it was just, ah, it was a dream come true for me. The next season I worked three games, but after seven seasons as the backup public address announcer, I'd only done seven games. It's the late 90s now and they were rolling over 2000 and they're building PNC Park. And they opened it up in 2001 and I went to my director and I said, Eric, I'm obviously as the backup PA announcer not working many games. Is there any chance there might be a new job in the scoreboard department that I could do to work more games? There was a Pepsi bottle that sat over the Clemente wall when they opened up PNC Park. And when the Pirates hit a home run, smoke came out of the Pepsi bottle. It was my job when the Pirates hit a home run to hit the button that made the smoke come out of the Pepsi bottle for 81 home dates a year in 2001, 2, 3, 4. So 2005 rolls around. And what we do before every season is we have a rehearsal at the ballpark before opening day. It's an empty ballpark. It's late March. I'm in my Pepsi smoke chair. We're going to play a simulated game up on the video board. And if the Pirates hit a home run, y'all hit the button. But otherwise, I have nothing to do. I'm going through the pregame script. And I see there's a little line that says, Radio MC. That means that somebody from the Pittsburgh media comes to the ballpark, and they stand on the field and address the crowd. And say, like they say their name, the station they're from, when their shift is. And I said, okay, it's snowing. It's late March. It's an empty ballpark. Nobody's showing up for this position. I went to my director. I said, Eric. Since I have nothing to do in the pregame, can I go down? Can I be the radio MC today? And he looked at me and said, You want to do that? I said, I said, I'd love to. He said, Grab a microphone. Grabbed the microphone, went down to the field, found the camera guy. And at 6:42, they cued me. And I'm a big preparation guy, but I really hadn't prepared for this. All my announcing really had been uh, not on screen. This was the first thing on the video board. So I got a camera, I didn't even know where to look, but I assumed look into the camera. And it went well. And after that rehearsal, my director tapped me on the shoulder and he said, he said, Joe, we watched you there and we thought it looked really good and we would like you to actually, if you're interested, host one of the games we play between innings on the video board. At the end of the fourth inning, you'll leave your Pepsi Smoke Guy position, you'll go down to the Riverwalk, and for, for that half inning, you'll play a game with a fan and then come back to the scoreboard room. I said, that'd be great. So now I'm actually announcing it all 81 games, one break. The next year it turned into two breaks, and then a couple years later, and now I'm doing like five inning breaks. The next year I'm doing all of pregame, and and now I sit here 15 years later. I've been the in-game host of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I have about nine in-game breaks, all of pregame. I don't take a single day for granted. And this is 15 years later, and I'm just as excited 15 years later as I was the first day I did this job. When I walk onto the field, and the first thing I actually do, I walk onto the field, I look over my left shoulder. I do this every game to remind myself, at the top of the video board, it says, home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's just a reminder. I'm like, it still hits me like, wow. I don't look at myself as, as an announcer as much as I do a, more like a fan with a microphone. I want that to be my persona here. But you know, I, 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 I treat every day like it's opening day because I feel like it's opening day. I'm that excited.
1: And what a story, Joe Klimchak's story. And it wouldn't have happened if his dad hadn't taken him to a ballpark. So you dads out there who think you're not making a difference spending time with your kids, well, here's a classic story. And he remembers the smells, he remembers the sights, he remembers feeling this bliss, and he's not rejected once, folks, or twice or three times. By the way, he'll take any job and work for free. Remember, he's given that job for free, and he says, I would have cleaned the place for free. And he just kept at it, and he just kept showing up and asking for more. And it's everything we need to learn about how to How to succeed and thrive and prosper in life is to show up and serve. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen. We've told the story of Allegory Handcrafted Goods, the Chicago-based pen and Leather Goods Company, the story of the principal pursuit locomotive of the Great Railroad Chase, and also the story of the two men who ended red light camera tickets, and so much more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib. And this is the Our American Stories podcast.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love.
1: Com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
2: is Uncanny USA.
1: He says, somebody's in the house, and
3: I screamed. <laughs>
0: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
4: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.